Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The battleground today is Ukraine. But this is our fight, too. So far, in aid for Ukraine, Canada has sent about a billion dollars worth of financial assistance and humanitarian aid, uh, but we have more to do. President Putin has made a grave and historic error. This is the last gasp of a failing kleptocracy. For today, we continue to stand with Ukraine, united and strong. Hey, it's Fatma Sayed, and this is The Backbench, a podcast about Canadian politics, and today's episode is all about Ukraine. Canadian leaders are in Europe this week as the conflict between Ukraine and Russia escalates to an all-out shelling in major Ukrainian cities. We'll assess the response so far. Then we'll compare how Canada's conflict response appears really uneven in different countries. We'll try to figure out why. Joining me this week, Caroline Elliott, freelance writer and PhD candidate at Simon Fraser University. Welcome back. Happy to be here. Jessica Sandu is also here. He's the co-founder of Boz News and a senior strategist at State. Making me alliterate on a Monday morning, Jessica. That's the, that's the least I can do. And Drew Brown joins us again. He's the editor-in-chief at The Independent. Hi, Drew. Hey, what's up? Let's get into it. By the time you'll hear this episode, the Russian war in Ukraine will be wrapping up its second week. According to Politico, around 95% of Russia's combat power is somewhere inside Ukraine. A strategic port city of Kherson's administrative building has been occupied. The list of alleged war crimes is increasing. There was the bombing of hospitals, residential neighborhoods, and more. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau is in Europe this week for a four-country tour to meet with allies about responses to Russia and another unprecedented refugee crisis, which we'll talk about later in the show. Defense Minister Anita Anand, Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie, and International Development Minister Harjit Sajjan are also in Europe for similar meetings. Now, broadly, Canada and its Western allies have maintained that these attacks are an act of aggression from Russian President Vladimir Putin. They have described them as an attack on Ukraine's sovereignty, Ukrainian democracy, and by extension, Western democratic values and the international rules-based order. Putin has said its special military operation was an effort to demilitarize, denazify, and support Russian-backed rebels, who have been in the region since 2014. 
Since our last conversation two weeks ago, the government of Canada has decidedly stepped up its response to the conflict. Along with its allies, the government has sanctioned more than 1,000 Russian individuals. Seven Russian banks will be removed from the banking communication system SWIFT as of March 12th. Simply put, think of SWIFT as the communication highways for the global e-transfer system. Russia and Belarus have also been removed off of Canada's list of preferred trading partners, and 35% tariffs have been applied to Russian goods. Putin has likened these sanctions to declaring war, and on Monday the Kremlin even approved a list of countries who have been quote-unquote unfriendly to Russia, and that list includes Canada. Drew, Putin compared economic sanctions to declaring war. Do you agree? I mean, I understand the rhetorical move that Putin's making in this case, but I, I would not consider sanctions um, as an, an act of capital W war, especially when we're talking about, you know, like shelling and, and boots on the ground and an active conflict. But I think it is also important to stress that, like, sanctions are quite serious. They are meant to sort of, um, like, literally put the squeeze on the Russian populace um, in general to weaken resolve and make the war so tremendously costly for the Russians that they no longer wish to fully execute it in the way that they'd imagine. So it's obviously not an act of war in the same way of, like, Canadians like opening fire on like Russian troops in Ukraine or something, but it's about as serious as you can get short of doing that for sure. But is it a tool of war? Yes. And we've, we've been, we've seen it be used as a tool of war uh, in other conflicts uh, for the sole purpose of either in this case, what you're hearing a lot of is trying to destabilize Putin's hold on Russia, mm -hmm. uh, try to uh, encourage an uprising of sorts in his circles. Now, the critiques of sanctions have always been that the usually the people that suffer from a sanction are your regular folks on the ground who uh, may not directly have anything to do with the war. Now, I'm not one to you know, support Putin, uh, but I can understand the point that Putin is making and how he's seeing it. Yeah, if I can jump in there for a second, and I don't disagree with almost everything I think that Drew and Jaskarin said, but when we talk about definitions, I do worry a little bit about letting our opponent, in, in this case a sort of a dictatorial tyrant, dictate the terms of what he thinks is going on. And I totally get the point that's being made, but I think that... I wouldn't say that the economic sanctions and the actions with uh, SWIFT and other such things uh, amount to war per se. And the reason I say that is because look at the, the trepidation with which NATO is, is considering the issue of a no-fly zone over Ukraine. They're so careful to not engage their people in direct warfare with Russia. So when Russia kind of casts a sort of a wide net around the definition of war, I think what he's really doing is he's trying to make it seem like something's happening that's not happening. And what's not happening is NATO troops and allied troops are not directly engaging with the Russians. And I think in most people's minds, that's what they think of when they think of war. Yeah, I think for me, every time there's a conflict, I, I worry about the rhetoric uh, escalating the conflict even more. And yes, all of you are right in the sense that, you know, sanctions are meant to be used to uh, limit a country's or a government's ability to wage war. Um, I'm wondering, in, in this particular instance, are they as aggressive as they can be or should be? Are they as effective as, as they can be or should be? Because so far, there have been no signs that severe sanctions, along with the isolation and shaming that Putin and Russia have been uh, delivered, are doing anything to make 
Russia stop or slow down on his invasion of Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, those, those are sort of really important questions. Whether like the sanctions, I think, are definitely quite severe in that they are sort of like unquestionably like immiserating large portions of like the Russian civilian population. Whether or not that's like effective as the tool of like dampening the war effort is another question. Although this is like clearly a way to isolate Russia from the global uh, economic system, like from from the Western angle, this is sort of like also in many ways going to reveal how sort of like independent Russia itself and its connections with the rest of the world are from the West. Well, it was interesting to note that while there were seven Russian banks that were banned from SWIFT, uh, Canada and its allies stopped short of banning banks that handle energy payments. And right. there are so many Canadian companies, especially in the natural resource sector um, that my colleagues at the Narwhal wrote about, who are still doing business with Russia. So again, which begs the question, are these sanctions really doing anything to uh, stop Putin's war efforts in Ukraine? I think one of the impacts that they could have that maybe is less obvious, but is, of course, it impacts Putin's ability to have the money to actually wage the war. But I think another thing that it does is undermines his leadership and not just with the billionaires who surround him, who are really impacted by these and who will be whispering in his ear, I imagine in no uncertain terms, that they don't like losing billions of dollars, mm. um, threatening his leadership that way, but also amongst the populace feeling the pressure as well. And we're seeing tens of thousands of people being jailed for protesting. I mean, incredibly courageous people protesting the war. But also, I imagine that concern about the war will grow as these impacts are felt more widely in the population. So I think there's a few ways that they will likely work and are working as we speak. UNICEF actually found that hundreds of thousands of Iraqi children died because of harsh sanctions imposed on Iraq by the United Nations and supported by the United States after Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. And we're seeing a lot of rumbling right now about inflation. We're seeing a lot of rumblings and grumblings about oil prices, which are at their highest level for almost 14 years, and and people wondering if that's related to the sanctions or not. So at what point do the sanctions start hurting civilians, not just in Russia, but also around the world, I guess? And at what point do we start questioning whether this is an effective tool of war? No, sanctions can be blunt instruments and the collateral from sanctions can be very wide. To the point before that, you know, yeah, Russia is a, is a resource economy. The energy sector uh, is still, by and large, making money. If anything, with the prices going the way they are, you know, Russia's recuperating a lot of those dollars and they're integral to Europe's uh, energy security. Uh, and so, you know, we can't dismiss that side of the equation. So what are we actually achieving with our sanctions? Are we stopping Putin's war machine or are we just trying to make life as difficult as possible for the regular Russian so that they fight Putin? Now, whether that actually amounts to, you know, the rebellion that, you know, maybe some people think or, or hope will come out of this. You know, you bring up the Saddam Hussein example, you can bring up examples from Iran, you could bring up examples from other places in the world where we have used sanctions with the hope that it will uplift the people and, and force them to the overthrow governments or something. Uh, is that actually what happens? I don't know if history necessarily shows that, you know, 10 times out of 10. I think one kind of component to the reaction from the West, including, you know, from corporations, which I, which I think is interesting, is like using this as a tool of deterrence and of such, right? You know, if you're mm -hmm. looking towards... You know, other global players, whether that's, let's say, China, who has its eye on Taiwan, just as an example. You know, maybe China's looking at this. This is not just going to be a military bombs and bullets uh, endeavor if, if we were ever to act in aggression uh, to, in this case, Taiwan, that the repercussions uh, economically will be pretty stark. Like the West obviously has an appetite to do this. Now, I know we're going to talk about it in the second half. Does it have the appetite to do it when it's 
not blonde hair and, and blue eyes uh, folks that are suffering uh, on the side of aggression. And, all that, and that's a topic we can talk about after the jump. But there's obviously a, a tool of deterrence here as well. Looking ahead, you know, to someone who's not an expert in international relations or, you know, war or humanitarian efforts, what kind of things should we be watching out for? Look, I, I think we're, we have in front of us a fairly like multipolar world right now, right? We have Obviously, American hegemony like hasn't necessarily gone away. You see a maybe more emboldened uh, and confident EU and NATO. You know, what's what's China's role in all of this? We've seen now, uh, for example, the Security Council vote and to denounce what Russia's up to. Uh, India abstained, China abstained, and the UAE abstained, right? Like, what does that actually say about where the relationships exist between the East and the West? Uh, because they may not see this in the same way that the West is. Uh, countries like India and, and President Modi, uh, Prime Minister Modi has been pretty nonchalant about this and kind of backed off. China, you know, where are they going to go with this? And that's still yet to be seen. And so what does the global context look like coming out of this? Does this mean that we're just pushing Russia closer to China? Like we may be. That's actually a really interesting point. It's something that I've been thinking about a lot. Like the idea that like this is like a war by Russia against the international rules-based order, let's say, which I think is a little bit of an overstatement because I am old enough to remember when uh, America invaded Iraq in defiance of international rules-based order. Not like not to like equivocate between the two, but just to say that like we have been living in a world where international rules-based order has historically been kind of like analogous to American hegemony, right? But as Chiskaran sort of alluded to, we are sort of living in a increasingly multipolar world. And I think one way to read this conflict is that like this is kind of like Russia taking the gambit that, you know, like it, it isn't like a unipolar American superpower world anymore, right? Like other sort of major countries can take these sort of like bullish actions, like militarily, let's say, and not face the kind of like immediately blowback that's kind of characterized like the last like three years. Mm. And I think I think that was kind of like part of Putin's gambit here was like that was the read of the room that, you know, we're actually back into more of like a great power multipolar world than we have been in a very long time. So I sort of imagine like a lot of other countries are watching this very carefully with that in mind, right, to sort of see where the international power blocks actually do line up. I look at it and I think that we've seen, I mean, over the last two decades, we've seen it very much in like a de-risking, de-escalating approach to Russia and a lot of these other tensions in the world. Mm -hmm. And uh, whether it was the Crimea or Syria or other examples where, where Russia has asserted itself in ways that haven't been uh, particularly nice. Uh, and, and people have generally, countries have generally, you know, there's been sanctions, but there hasn't been anything like the response we've seen right. uh, in relation to this yeah. to this particular incident. And I think that I think it has shown that that kind of de-risking, de-escalating approach, I, I think, has emboldened Putin. He thinks that he can do things with impunity. I think China's been watching and thinking they can do things with impunity. And we've seen how they've moved in Hong Kong, for example. But what we're seeing now is a complete turnaround in terms of the international response to it, that rules-based order or the, the sort of Western approach where people have banded together in a way that I think is incredibly impressive. And I think when you do see a authoritarian, nuclear-armed dictator invade a sovereign, democratic state, it is incumbent on the world who believes in democracy to 
to stand with that nation. And I think that's what we're seeing. Definitely. Yeah, I, that's, I think that's definitely the sense, too. Like, I think that was the gambit aspect of the threat. I think he thought it would go one way and it clearly has not because a like military mm-hmm. incursion into another sovereign state is like a hard red line. It has been reassuring, actually, that, uh, yeah, there is still sort of a spine when like war crimes are committed. Selectively. <laughs> Sele- well, yes, selectively. Yes. Also, also a very important point to make. Right. Yes. This is the second half. But I, I just want to like a disclaimer kind of what we just went through. This would be impressive if we did this everywhere. Yeah, hold on to these thoughts. The economic portion of the discussion seems to be heading in one way. The military response is a little more chaotic because last Friday, NATO rejected Ukraine's call to establish a no-fly zone over the country despite repeated calls by Ukrainian President uh, Vladimir Zelensky. And he's criticized NATO's decision on this. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said it was to avoid a quote-unquote unfortunate escalation in the conflict because a no-fly zone basically could lead to an all-out war. But as a result, Ukrainian civilians continue to be caught in the crossfire. On Sunday, civilians were attacked and killed in Airpin outside Kiev. So I'm wondering why the hesitation militarily, first of all. And then I'm also wondering why, simultaneous to that, we're also promising to amp up our military support already. So why are we arming a war that Canada also says it doesn't want? It seems to be contradictory. I think there's a very big difference between direct action in a war and and indirect support. When I read that Ukraine was calling for a fly zone, my thought was, well, let them have it then. If it helps them and it helps deter the deaths of more civilians, like give it to them. And as I read more about it, I came to understand that it's a far more complex thing. And one of the main things is you need to be able to enforce a no fly zone. If you just declare it, it's meaningless. I'll dumb it down uh, because I'm an idiot myself. Uh, You know, there's a there's a big difference between saying, come at me, bro. And then punching someone in the nose, right? Like there, there's a there's a big difference between those two. <laughs> and one is posturing in the hopes that the bro doesn't come at you. And the second is I'm now gonna get into a fist fight. I'm sorry, this is the example I use because I lived above a bar during my university days. No, I, this is a great example. I love it. I've seen many fist fights. <laughs> the point is that there's a stark difference between the two. And this is also Putin uh posturing or Putin, sorry, depending what language you speak, to say. I am on the brink of going nuts. Uh, now, I don't think Putin is an irrational actor. I don't think he's an irrational actor on the global stage. But I think this is imposturing to say it's not going to take much for me to s- suggest uh, internally that we are now at war with NATO. And you guys are at the brink. Don't take a step beyond this line. And that line would be something like a no-fly zone. And to Caroline's point, flying jets over in the air is not as simple as just flying jets over the air. You got to take out uh, the, the surface-to-air missiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you got to take out opposing jets. You got to claim air superiority. Like It's a very complex procedure that is very costly, and it will cost human lives on both sides. Like Russia's not some rinky-dink army. Like this is very sophisticated, and defense is is easier than offense, right? And and this will be costly uh, for anyone trying to think they can just take out Russian jets. And so that comes at a huge cost, and it pulls NATO in, which pulls in everyone. So are we just like exhausting every option available to us, us being the West, before we have to? intervene militarily? Yeah, I, I think they will probably try to exhaust as many possible avenues as, as possible um, before sort of like entering into, because like, a no-fly zone is basically like that is entering into like a direct conflict and entering into a direct conflict is then like a further escalation towards like the maximum level, which is like thermonuclear war between nuclear armed uh, world powers, which emphatically is the quite literally worst case scenario of 
like human history. So I, I imagine, you know, like, again, like, I, I also don't think that Putin is necessarily an irrational actor, but like the logic of like nuclear armed warfare escalation does lead to that point, right? And I imagine everybody at NATO is also fully well aware that like you don't want to go down that road unless absolutely 100 million percent necessary, which is actually never. Yeah, I mean, in case it's not obvious, I'm very anxious about the prospect of global thermonuclear war. Um, it seems really bad. <laughs> what can Canada do to contribute to de-escalation? Look, Canada's been on the lead of upping the ante. So I don't know if Canada's actually the one that's on the de-escalation side of this issue. Now, that may not be a completely fair argument because I, I think you know, sanctions and all these things are the hopes of solving this without more bloodshed. But Canada has been on the side of being very aggressive. Uh, and, you know, their diplomatic mission right now to the EU is, is part of that. Right? Like, let's continue to keep the heat on Russia. We've walked on an argument uh, around crimes against humanity to the International Criminal Court. Right? Like, these are steps Canada has taken and has been leading on, quite frankly. So I, I don't know what's next for Canada and, and what else uh, they're expecting to do other than to up the economic pressure and keep funneling you know, sophisticated state-of-the-art arms into the hands of Ukrainians. Yeah, we don't seem as invested in de-escalation necessarily as maybe we should be, but I do think the appropriate response is to... Um, keep diplomatic channels open and make sure cooler heads prevail in terms of military escalation and um, frankly just sort of like helping with the humanitarian response um, to sort of like make sure that the damage that is being done is minimized as much as possible as much as we are in a position to do um, and I think that has included sort of like the the overtures to like taking a lot of the refugees I think like that that is a very good thing that Canada historically is um, or at least aspires to be very good at. I would say the escalation is virtually entirely happening on the Russian side, and it's been happening there every step of the way. The fact that they've been sitting in Crimea since 2014, and the world has essentially watched, there's been sanctions and things, but essentially we've watched, we've let them get away with it every step of the way. And I do believe that has emboldened Putin. It led him to believe that he could do this with impunity. He's done it anyway. The rest of the world is doing everything they can to de-escalate through economic sanctions, to de-escalate through support of Ukraine in order to not get involved themselves when their democratic neighbor right next door is involved in being completely invaded by a nuclear dictator. It's terrifying. And I think we're doing the right thing. And I almost wonder if we should be doing more. Caroline, when you say more, what do you mean by that? Um, I look at, for example, SWIFT. We talk about how it affects seven banks, but it doesn't affect the largest Russian lender involved in energy uh, transfer payments. Uh, the fact that there's been allowed to be, and it's too late now, but the fact that there's been allowed to be this buildup of reliance on Russian resources in Europe that prevents them from being able to take real action. I mean, it's one of those things where not only does relying on Russian energy um, enrich them and then arm them, essentially, in their fight against our, our values and democracies, it provides them with the means to, to develop their nuclear arms, for example, but it also gives them a massive strategic advantage when it comes to uh, nations being reliant on them. So when I say more, I mean championing a world in which we're not making ourselves reliant on people who don't share our values as democracies, transitioning like this second right now to places where you can get those resources developed in ways that don't cause these problems and enrich dictators. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. 
United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What's your point of order, Jessica? <laughs> I fear that I may be canceled uh, as a result of this. Mm. Uh-oh. Spicy. I know, I know. It's about Gurdip Pander, <laughs> or Gurdip Pander, uh, if you don't speak Punjabi. Well, you have to tell the people who he is first. Okay, I just assume everyone knows who this guy is. <laughs> he he does Pangra, uh, very popular on Twitter. Pangra is a Punjabi folk dance uh, for uh, joyous occasions. Uh, it's, it's, it's its intent. So it's, you know, very often at weddings, you know, festivals, uh, what have you. And uh, Gurdip has, uh, he lives in the Yukon. Uh, he has become very famous for doing Bhangra uh, in a very, very beautiful scenic uh, Yukon in the north to global fame and love, which is great. Uh, don't get me wrong. I, I love the smile on his face. So Bhangra is also a dance you're supposed to do with a huge smile on your face. Again, pulling from the whole joyous component of it. Now, people have noticed that when Gurdip posts videos uh, for more solemn occasions uh, or for things that are more crisis oriented, like Ukraine, for example, uh, that a lot of brown folks, uh, primarily from my background, Punjabi uh, and or uh, Sikh, tend to hate on him. And someone asked me why. One is Bhangra is not something you do for people in distress. It is quite frankly, cultural appropriation of our own culture. It is being misused and misrepresented. Second is, I love the guy. I love watching his videos. I think it's wonderful. His Pangara is actually not very good. Now, that doesn't mean there's you can have bad dancers or, or not professional dancers doing Pangara. Like, for example, I, I like to dance and I'm terrible at it, but I'm not trying to teach people. The final point is Pangara has a, a certain purpose, and if you use it for every purpose, it no longer uh, serves its original intent properly. This is not a point of order, but a very fascinating beginning of a conversation about how brown culture or any culture can be used in the wrong ways. That's what I'll Look, leave I'll it just, at. I, I'll just, this is way too long of a point of order, but I'll add one more point here. It, it also irks us a little bit that like this is the representation of brownness that white folks love because it's not threatening which will segue to our second half of this podcast, <laughs> well, I hope. Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Caroline? It's going to sound a little bit silly in, in light of the gravity of the topics we've been discussing, so I almost feel crazy bringing it up, but I thought maybe a, a lightener midway through the show is not a bad thing. And I also wanted to find a way to bring up the conservative leadership race, since, uh, as you know, the rules were released last week, and they're going to be casting their leadership vote on, I believe, September 10th. Uh, and here in BC, we actually just finished a leadership race for the BC Liberal Party as well. So uh, there's been some leadership stuff going on. And I've noticed this weird tendency of prominent members of parties of the other side writing columns and tweets explaining the kind of leader that X party needs while coming from like the totally different viewpoint of virtually every single member of that party. <laughs> and not only is this commentary almost entirely wrong, it's also kind of pointless because the party members of the opposite side, like that's the last person they're going to listen to. So my point of order, <laughs> I guess, is what's the point? <laughs> they just want to have a say on who they'll be fighting in the next campaign. Right. You can't blame yeah. them for that. I guess not. Right. Nine out of ten people who would never vote conservative agree. Exactly. Jean Charest is the person the conservative <laughs> 
<laughs> Madam Speaker, I have a point of order. What is your point of order, Drew? I'm going to assume that everybody here has seen uh, Love is Blind on Netflix, <laughs> which if you haven't, oh my god, it's incredible. But like, so it's so like these like Netflix like dating shows that are framed as like social experiments are getting like increasingly demented. And I think that's like, I think we need to have like a conversation and possibly like intervene at Netflix headquarters about this. So like at the end of the like Love is Blind season two reunion special, which is like fully fucking unhinged in its own way. Um, they sort of like use it as an opportunity to showcase this like new reality show that they're going to do where they take like four or five couples who are like going through some sort of like major relationship crisis and then putting them all in like an apartment complex together and making them do like partner swaps to see if this will like save or doom their relationships. Anyway, it's like, it's crazy. I, I think uh, social science is run amok at Netflix headquarters. Something needs to be done. So that's my point of order. Not a point of order, but maybe we should pitch like the politics version of Love is Blind to Netflix and see that how that goes. Like, I'm oh, just God. saying. <laughs> oh, man. I think. Oh, jeez. It's like, congratulations, Drew. You now support Pierre Polyev. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. We talked a bit about this in the first segment, but let's really get into this. The international community's condemnation, including Canada's, has been pretty loud over what's happening in Ukraine. So loud that even non-state actors like Apple, Samsung, Zara, H&M, Harley-Davidson, and more have jumped on board. None of these international retailers plan on operating in Russia anymore. And none of us want to diminish the suffering of Ukrainians or understate the severity of the Russian government's aggressive actions there. And yet, I have this sense that the Canadian response to democracies or sovereignty being attacked has been uneven. And that sits a little awkwardly with me. Take the response to the refugee crisis. We know that Ukraine's seen 1.5 million refugees from this war already. Poland has accepted 1 million alone. The Liberal government has announced expedited temporary visas for emergency travel, which will allow Ukrainians to work in Canada until it's safe to return home. Immigration Minister Sean Fraser also said that the processing time will be weeks rather than the usual year. A family reunification plan has also been put into motion for those who want to stay in Canada permanently. Now, the Canadian press reported on Monday that Canada has already accelerated and approved 6,000 immigration applications from Ukraine since January when concerns of invasion were first raised. The government has put no limit on the number of people who can apply to come on a temporary basis. But this program only applies to Ukrainian citizens. Non-Ukrainians in Ukraine, like the Afghans who fled there last year, can't use these emergency and sped-up measures to come to Canada. Meanwhile, Canada is still far short of fulfilling its plan to admit 40,000 asylum seekers from Afghanistan after the fall of Kabul last year. So, Jessica, you work in the refugee space. How is the government's response to Ukrainian refugees compared to refugees from elsewhere? Where are you on this on this topic? Can I rant? Please. Please, but just make it short. <laughs> That's not going to be possible. Okay, let me let me just take this from the top, okay? Um, this is coming from a space of envy, that the compassion and empathy and nuance that we've been willing to apply as a country or as the West to what's happening in Ukraine hasn't necessarily been applied to other conflicts in other countries. So you asked about the refugee situation, so I'll, I'll start with that. We can talk about Afghanistan, uh, a situation where Canada had a direct role in, militarily and otherwise which I would say necessitates a certain amount of obligation from this country. 
And the response hasn't been nowhere like Ukraine, like not even close. Um, and I can even take it back further than that. For the past seven years, the Afghan Sikh and Hindu community, for example, has been almost entirely privately sponsored by Sikhs here in Canada. And they've been hit with burdensome bureaucratic hell that has, for the past seven years, only allowed about, I think, less than 100 or so in at this point in time. Persecution, war, uh, under complete threat. And advocates have been asking the Canadian government for almost seven years now to put together an expedited process to bring these folks over. Conservatives, NDP, Greens, literally even actually wrote a letter to the Liberals two years ago saying, set up an expedited process. It's not going to cost you anything politically. We're not fighting this. We actually want this to happen as well. And we were told over and over again, it is impossible. Moving that quickly is impossible. It cannot happen. It will never happen. You just have to suck it up and wait. Fast forward to today. You know, there's a couple of things that are irking me personally. Um, First of all, we've now learned that it is possible. We've also learned that security checks are probably not as concerning as they were in the case of brown folks. We've also learned that government, when it has political will, can churn on a dime. And then we learned that the Canadian government was proactively preparing for these refugees, actually in advance, in preparation of a potential invasion. That was not the case when it comes to folks in Afghanistan, when Kabul fell and the, and the other commitments that were made. And again, we're just not seeing it. And it's absolutely infuriating for folks in this space. The double standards have never been so obvious. It's been a total mask off moment. You know, it's like simple things like Canada has allowed in almost 300 cats and dogs fleeing Afghanistan at this point. That is three times more than Afghan six that have been privately sponsored for over seven years. And so, like, when the community sees that, like, what are we supposed to think? Caroline, jump in here. Why do you think the response to refugees seems to vary depending on the region or the country? I don't know, but it is notable. Uh, and, and I think Jasper raises a lot of good points. And I've been really critical of the fact that the federal government has absolutely let the Afghan people down. It's atrocious what they did from the airlifting out in the first place to their 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 lack of follow-through on bringing people into this country. It's shameful. These people helped us. I can't explain why they've been so slow to move there and so quick to move uh, in, in the Ukrainian situation. I think, for what it's worth, that what they're doing with the Ukrainians is the, the right thing to do. Now, why that isn't extended to other countries, I don't know. I know Canada can't take every refugee in the world, and there's so many. Uh, is there more we can do? I, I feel like there must be. I know there's practical limitations to that, but uh, yeah, I, my, my short answer is I can't explain it, but I wish it were different. There are a number of reasons, I think, why we are responding differently to the refugee crisis in Ukraine than other ones. Um, and I do agree with Carolyn that I think the approach we're taking to refugees from Ukraine is the correct one and should be extended more uniformly across the board. Fundamentally, I think the major factor here is like the basic structural racism of the Canadian state and the Canadian, you know, like state media apparatus, like the way in which like we perceive the rest of the world, right? In the sense that like conflicts like Yemen are basically invisible. Where sort of you see war break out in Europe and suddenly everybody's like would be fixated on it, right? And you have people saying things sort of like, oh, well, like this is the first war that's ever happened, you know, with like social media and like up close. It's the first one we're witnessing that's why we're so involved in it. But like that's like objectively, that is not true. Like, you know, like I'm like 34 years old and for the last like 20 years at least, the background has just always been like consistent, like war trauma porn in some way, right? And you can, you can, like it, it's been visible for so long. 
But because it is happening in places that are basically differently racialized and we're sort of like on the other end of like the imperialist bloc that we're like part of, it just like does not register in the same way that the Ukrainian crisis does. Yemen at the moment is characterized as one of the worst humanitarian crises in the world, if not the worst to date. And Canada has provided some assistance, $295 million in humanitarian funding to support food assistance, clean water, sanitation, shelter, protection, healthcare since 2015. Canada's also invested $22 million in peace and security assistance in Yemen. At the same time, because we're talking about contradictions a lot, we're also providing arms to Saudi Arabia who is a major aggressor in the conflict in Yemen. You know, Yemen was being bombed as Ukraine was being invaded in Russia, which and it didn't make as many headlines as it is. And in the Yemeni case, Canada funnels its military support through an international body, i.e. the United Nations. But in the Ukrainian case, we sent the hand grenades and rocket launchers straight in the hands of the Ukrainian government. It's just so stark when you put it on paper and and, and so confusing. And part of me wonders, and and this is maybe an unpopular opinion, part of me wonders if it's because the pressure is coming from the Ukrainian diaspora in Canada, which is roughly 1.3, 1.4 million people. I don't... In the case of Afghanistan, it was 607,600 to 700,006 that we're saying, let's bring over the Afghan six over plus 17 sick MPs and four sick ministers. That, that didn't amount to anything. It amounted to jack all, right? And so it's like, what is the, what is the actual reasons for the, the discrepancies? Well, the Ukrainian welcoming committee has Christia Freeland as a member. Well, may, maybe that's what it was. Maybe you know, Navdeep Bents and, and company were just were not as influential or persuasive as Freeland is. I, and that may be it. I don't know. I get so frustrating. Now, on the case of Yemen, there's been reports that have suggested Canadian arms, contrary to claims made by Global Affairs Canada, have directly aided and abetted some of the worst human rights violations committed on this planet as of right now. And hundreds of thousands of people have either been killed, they've been starved to death, campaigns being led by the Saudi and and, and their coalition have bombed civilian uh, areas. Uh, it has led to widespread destruction and death and again, very much like the Afghanistan example, Canada has a responsibility because of and as a result of its direct involvement in that conflict. And this is not me saying, oh, because they're not doing it here, we shouldn't be doing it in Ukraine. Like, it's, it's literally the opposite of that. Again, this is, this is envy speaking. Like, this is envy in my voice. Like, what we're seeing from the compassion and empathy that is being provided to Ukraine is not being provided in other conflicts. And what makes it even more stark and reek of hypocrisy is that even in conflicts where Canada has a direct role, it is not doing it, right? And in fact, they're aiding and abetting uh, in, in a lot of these atrocities. And we kind of just sweep it under the rug. And again, it really feels like grandstanding when we do speak up. Like either you be consistent on this stuff or you just don't. Again, the, the Yemen example is a perfect one. It's one we all just conveniently ignored and not really speak about to any big degree. It hasn't become like an election issue in the past. But how is that... At its core, all that different from the aggression we're seeing uh, from Russia. I think it's critically important to draw a distinction between the support and acceptance of refugees and, and our different approaches between, let's say, Ukraine and Yemen, which is very noteworthy and deserves some some real uh, reflection and, and, and criticism for that matter. But different sides in terms of military support are 
have different levels of of worthiness of support. And uh, maybe I'm using the wrong words here, but when we talk about armed support, there's even a further distinction that needs to be made. There's support militarily, like we're providing Ukraine, where we're literally giving them weapons. And in the case of Yemen, having an arms contract with Saudi Arabia. I'm not saying I agree with the arms contract, but it is a different, it's a little bit of a different situation, right? Where you're selling arms to a side based on an arms contract that they might be using in that war, they might be using elsewhere. I don't like it. Don't get me wrong. I, I think Saudi Arabia is guilty of a, of a lot of uh, human rights abuses, as are the, the other side of that conflict. That's why I support bringing in refugees from that region, because there's just so many people caught in the middle. But on the Ukraine side, I don't think there's much of a gray area. You have a reckless dictator threatening the use of nuclear weapons, invading a sovereign democratic nation that is on the border of other sovereign democratic nations, where Putin clearly cannot tolerate that kind of sort of freedom on his borders. Do the people of Yemen deserve our support? Absolutely. Let's bring them in. When it comes to the military situation there, it's it's very different. I do question whether Canada should be uh, fulfilling its arms commitment to Saudi Arabia. I do think that if they pull out of it, there'll be other implications. In my view, it's far more complicated in terms of if you want to break it down on the right and wrong scale. Caroline, I think you make an interesting argument that, you know, the Russia-Ukraine narrative is very clear cut. But we're, we didn't, you know, to Just Grin's first point in this part of the conversation, we didn't just abandon all the rules and regulation and just create a whole new welcoming system that would make life easy for refugees. And I will add that, you know, a lot of lawyers have been saying that refugee is a legal term as well that we need to be mindful of. Like there are certain sort of definitions and criteria that that you have to meet to be a quote unquote refugee. But if Canada is going to, you know, tout itself as the, the country that welcomes all refugees from all places of life, I think we do need to examine under a magnifying glass who we are accepting, who are we are not and why. Yeah, I just wanted to jump back quickly to a point that Fatima you made around, you know, the ability of the Ukrainian community here to lobby effectively and the ability of Freeland to be a fierce advocate for Ukraine. And I, I think that is worthy of conversation. And and I think that fits really neatly into this conversation we're having of double standards. And I have to be clear on this, um, because even when I was highlighting you know, brown and black suffering of refugees trying to flee Ukraine and facing physical racism in their attempts to get out of the country by Ukrainian officials, I was... I was told, uh, uh, amongst others, that we were Russian operatives. Uh, and so I want to make very clear that by highlighting double standards does not make you a Russian operative. So I, I want to make it very clear that even in the case of Freeland's advocacy for Ukraine and, and her heritage, I'm inspired by that. What bothers me is, again, the double standards of the way that we're treating her pride and, and her people and, and using her deep understanding of her people to advocate, you know, in this case, uh, for the Canadian government in this situation. You know, Freeland goes to a rally where there is flags of uh, the UPA. Uh, and most experts agree uh, that it is far right and it's steeped in some very problematic history. What bothered me about that, it was the, the silence around it. And, you know, we don't even have to deal with hypotheticals. We saw what happened to Jagmeet Singh. Uh, he wasn't even leader for like, you know, the first interview he did. He was held to task for stuff that he, he had no involvement with. He was consistently questioned on dual loyalties is not the way Freeland is going to be ever treated. Uh, there's a double standard in the way that we talk about dual loyalties, quote unquote, uh, which is you know often bullshit. Uh, but there's also the way that you know Freeland 
uh, is able to give a response that this is, you know, Russian propaganda and kind of leave it at that without actually providing any deeper explanation and kind of just walking away from that. No one's going to ever ask Freeland to denounce X, Y, Z from Ukrainian history in the way that, let's say, brown politicians. In the case, I'm not dealing with hypotheticals. Jigmeet was literally gone through this where he has to respond for and apologize for stuff. Again, apologies anchored in a complete misunderstanding of our history anyways. Um, and that's that's also deeply problematic. I do think there's probably no conflict in the world where I think small and even large injustices, and, and many of them, in fact, large injustices, are, are playing out amidst the grander tragedies of the situation. The, the treatment of, of the people that Jaskarin mentioned is absolutely one of them. I imagine that, um, that there's issues with the treatment of women in Yemen, for example. Uh, and, and I do think that the, the chaos of war sometimes amplifies those. I say, you know, it's, it's wonderful that Jaskarin's doing the work he's doing to highlight those issues and, and keeping people held to account. Um, and at the same time, Keeping the perspective around the, the grander tragedy as well, finding that way to, ex- to to keep people to account, but also maintaining the solidarity with the overall cause. It's such a tricky balance. It's important. I mean, fuck, like this is going to sound really trite, but like war, war is hell, right? Like it's and it's it's the, the, the sort of like the situation in Ukraine. I think has sort of like for for all the the fact of double standards, but like yes, there are lots of other conflicts in the world that have been um, marginalized and basically like more or less hidden from view for many people for many years. Like it's now sort of like people are kind of like confronted by this again um, in a way that I think many of them like haven't been. It is a really complicated situation and there are lots of different angles to like talk about, but like, yeah, fundamentally, like at the end of the day, even though like we we sort of like can't look away from what is currently happening, it's also like, it's really fucking hard to watch this shit. It's hard to watch it anywhere. It's hard to see it in any part of the world. It's hard to see it now on the TV constantly, like fucking everywhere you go. Brown and black folks are watching this very differently from the way, you know, white folks are or the West is, right? When we celebrate our martyrs, when we celebrate people who fought against resistance, we're told we're called terrorists, right? Like it's it's very different. Um, and that nuance and that compassion has never, ever fucking been afforded to us. And it's infuriating because we deserve it too, not just the Ukrainians. And also, that's also a reason why we, I think we sympathize with what's happening in Ukraine to a different way than folks are as well, because we've seen it. We've been on the other end of that. Uh, and we, we know what that feels like. Fucking infinite solidarity and support to like the Ukrainian people who are like caught in between like fucking bullshit Russian aggression for like stupid political purposes and all the fucking like Western grandstanding fucking great power bullshit. With Ukraine dominating the headlines, we're missing some stuff. So my rapid fire question of the day, what's something that our audience should also be thinking about in the little brain space that they have that isn't just Ukraine and their personal lives? Caroline, you seem ready. Let's go. Uh, I would argue people should be keeping an eye on the special joint committee reviewing the use of the Emergencies Act to handle the truckers' protest. And I know that it pales in comparison to what the Ukrainians are facing, and, and I get why Canadians have moved their focus there, but they'll be looking at whether or not the circumstances actually met the threshold for declaring a public emergency. They'll be looking at whether the situation actually required the extraordinary powers that were granted. I imagine they'll be looking at the funding and, and all those sorts of things, the police actions. So uh, these are critical questions. Uh, and they do demand attention, even if it's moved off the front pages and into the back section of the newspaper that no one subscribes to anymore. We're watching it closely, and I'm sure we'll talk about it more on the show. Drew. Uh-huh. I mean, something that I'm certainly thinking about a lot is the federal sanctioning process around the Beidou Nord uh, oil field um, about 
several hundred kilometers offshore uh, the island of Newfoundland. Um, it was the decision on whether or not the federal government would proceed to greenlight it was supposed to come down on Friday, and then it was pushed to yesterday, and then they announced it's actually going to be another 40 days, because apparently the Liberal cabinet is completely split over it. For me, it's kind of like the bellwether of like the future of like oil and gas development in Canada, because the sort of pro-arguments are that, like, well, now, given the conflict in the world and the things that are happening, we Canada needs energy security more than ever. And then sort of the flip side of the argument is that, like, well, actually, despite current volatility, the long-term trajectory for fossil fuels are not good. Climate change is still a major serious problem. And in fact, there is no way, like, there's no such thing as clean oil, because even if you have zero emissions in pumping it up, you still take it and fucking go burn it somewhere else. So, like, the central question of, like, is this, like, an environmentally sustainable thing to do that the, the cabinet has to deliberate is basically come down to, like, what is very clearly the answer, like, no, not really if we take climate change seriously. But at the same time, like, it's really hard up here in this province, man. We don't really have a lot, or our economy is like kind of fucked and this is something that uh, large segments of society here like depend a lot on to mm-hmm. see succeeding and it's going to be interesting to see where does the power lie in Ottawa. We'll have to wait 40 days <laughs> to find out. Yeah. Just Grin. I'm interested to see for the conservative leadership I think that you're going to have a real big uh, conversation in this leadership race as to what direction the party goes into um, and who represents that new direction. Because uh, I think there's a very real feeling amongst conservatives that the next election is probably going to be one they actually will win. Uh, and so what direction they choose to go in this leadership may effectively uh, dictate the direction of this country in two to four years. So uh, not something to take lightly and something to watch very closely because there are quite a few different paths the Conservative Party can take uh, from this movement uh, on from this moment onwards. All right, on that note, let's adjourn. That was The Backbench. We're living in complicated times, so let us know what you're watching closely, what you're concerned about, what you'd like to hear us discuss and break down to help you understand it better. We're doing the best we can, and we want to help. Send us your questions, your concerns, your rants. You can email us, backbench at candleland.com. We're also on Twitter at backbenchcast. I'm Fatma Sayyid, and you can find me on Twitter at Fatma B. Sayyid. You can find my work on the Narwhal. Where can everyone follow your rants and thoughts and smart analysis? Jaskaran, where are you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Jaskaran Sandhu underscore. Uh, and then you can follow Boz at, at Boz News Org. And Caroline, where are you? I'm on Twitter at North Van Caroline. That's N Van Caroline. And I contribute to thehub.ca. Andrew, where do people follow you? Uh, unfortunately, people tend to follow me on Twitter, where I am uh, at Drufenland, like the island, but my name. Um, or otherwise, and for everybody's benefit, I'm spending more and more time running the independent.ca. This episode was produced by Tiffany Lamb with additional production by Tristan Capacione. Our managing editor is Kieran Outhorn. Theme music is by Nathan Burley. Thanks for listening and see you again soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, 
Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.